Hello, and welcome back to Yale Emergency Medicine Podcast. Within the series of podcasts that we have done, we have focused on key pediatric emergencies. Throughout these podcasts, we've addressed the continuum of care from EMS to the community hospitals to the children's hospital. Previously, we have discussed child abuse, the management of the febrile neonate, airway emergencies, and now today we're gonna to discuss neonatal resuscitation during a precipitous delivery. Today, I have two very special guests with me. I'd first like to introduce Dr. Michael Goldman. He is an assistant professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine, Yale School of Medicine, and he is an attending physician in the pediatric emergency department at Yale, and he is co-medical director of EMSC. Welcome, guys. Hey, Tom, it's great to be back. How are you? Great. Um, How are you? Good, good. And I feel like I have the distinguished uh, responsibility and privilege to introduce our special guest today, our content expert, if you will. This is Dr. Christine Bruno. Um, she is Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Neonatology in, uh, at the Yale School of Medicine. Um, she has an exceptional track record with her training and on uh, with many of the programs that she is involved with now doing her fellowship uh, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, she is the fellowship director now here at Yale, um, which is an awesome position to have. And I think will really facilitate our conversation because she's an exceptional educator and I think can really break down some uh, overarching concepts for us ER docs. Uh, and then also is the associate director of the NICU graduation program. So following up our high risk patients that are discharged from the NICU. Um, Dr. Bruno, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, I'm very happy to be here today. Let me just take a minute uh, to give our audience just a sort of overview of what we hope to accomplish during our time together by reviewing some of our learning objectives and also an outline for our discussion, sort of how we'll bring these learning objectives to the forefront. Um, really, we have four learning objectives that we hope that our, our listeners accomplish by the end of our time together. The first is to review considerations of the basic management of a vigorous child born outside of a hospital setting. Then we'll dive into considering some basic resuscitation uh, for the child born at home who is not necessarily vigorous and may need to be managed by an EMS crew. Uh, lastly, as we step up the acuity of this situation, um, we'll dive into both the systems of care that helps improve outcomes for precipitous delivery, uh, thinking through equipment, personnel, and teams. And then lastly, solidify an approach to the non-vigorous baby born precipitously. We hope to ground this discussion in three cases. Uh, the first is a personal case that I'll share in a few moments uh, where, you know, having to think about delivering a baby outside of the hospital setting. And then we'll go through two others that really think through uh, ways to exemplify those learning objectives. So Dr. Bruno, the first question I would have for you is, we get this call from EMS. What information do you want to know about mom that can help you kind of risk stratify this patient and possibly two or more patients coming into you? Well, in that situation, I'd want to know um, what gestational age we're dealing with. If we do know the gestational age, you know, as we know, oftentimes, you know, not infrequently, there are moms who have no prenatal care, so they're unclear, unclear gestational age. Um, if there's one or more baby, <laughs> um, you know, th that's something that you, you'd yeah. want to know in advance. If there's any, um, any uh, health risk factors in the mother that could um, compromise the, the, the neonate at any point, the fetus at any point, um, hypertension, um, infections, 
et cetera, along, along those lines. So really those would be the, the big things, knowing gestational age, number of babies and any underlying risk factors that could compromise the baby in, in the mother's health, or if there is some prenatally known condition. All right, great, that, that's very helpful. And I think those are like key points that you wanna kind of get that information, whatever you can when EMS is coming to have an idea. So now we get down to uh, some other like definitions. Uh, a lot of times we hear the word vigorous and non-vigorous. So can you tell us what really that definition is of a vigorous baby? So that's a really, a really great question because oftentimes what I, what I would tell our trainees when, when they're learning is if a baby's crying, they're vigorous. And, um, and it's, it's interesting because oftentimes you'll still hear, you know, they're trying, the, the baby will be moving quite a bit, which is another sign of the baby being vigorous. And, um, and they would, you know, still trying to listen for the heart rate. And yes, you need to listen for the heart rate. But I always say that if the baby's heart rate, if the baby's crying, the baby's heart rate is greater than 100 unless they're in congenital heart block. <laughs> That's what I always yeah. kind of tell because you can give them a, a chance to kind of settle in. And, um, but yeah, so crying and, um, and adequacy of breathing sort of you see them moving, even if they're not crying. Some babies tend to be a little more quiet, but they're still breathing well. So just you see chest, you, you see chest rise in the babies. Um, they have um, their, their move, they have you know, movements of all extremities at, or most of the extremities if they you know, have, have a, potentially have an injury. And they have, I always think of a healthy baby, a vigorous baby having flexed arms and flexed legs. So they're in a bit of, a, they have good tone. So um, they look like they're muscled. They don't look like they're floppy. They don't look like they're um, they're they're not. That, those are really the terms that those are the things that I look at when I think about a vigorous baby. I think about the the crying, which is a proxy for adequacy of breathing, and then looking at chest rise, um, their movements, their overall movement, and then their their tone. Um, if they have good muscle tone, then that's a sign that they that they are vigorous and they're not compromised in any way, um, or they're not ill. It's such a good uh, analogy to sort of, I think, the ultimate dogma of emerging medicine, this concept of triage. And, you know, we really emphasize the pediatric assessment triangle. That's what's taught by PALS, it's sort of your general gestalt. Uh, I always think of it as, am I running or am I walking over to that room? Um, but it's really nice to have a frame in mind with respect to the approach to that baby <laughs> that's staring in front of you that's newly into this world. And truly, if you, you want all babies to be to be crying, but sometimes they're not, but they're still doing everything they're supposed to be doing. So I was, you know, the crying is really a, you know, a way to get to help increase the pressure in the lungs to help improve the, you know, increase the absorption of the fluid in the lungs to increase their pressure. Um, and, and some babies maybe not don't need that as much as others. And, um, and that's, I think that's why some babies cry more than others. And then it's just the, the differences that happen just by chance. So Yeah, no, that's great. And, you know, the other thing to think about, especially in, in more rural settings or community hospitals is when this patient's coming via EMS, who do you need to be helping you? You know, where's this baby going to go once they're delivered? Can they stay there with you guys or do they have to be shipped somewhere else? And so I, as soon as any emergency comes in, it's uh, really demanding um, a really sick patient or, you know, one of these potential cases, uh, I think about, you know, who can help me on these cases? And so that's like one thing I think every system needs to look at is what process do you have in place to get help? Any other thoughts on that? I think I think that's a, a really good good point. Like so when you're in these situations that are you know high stakes and hopefully rare events, 
that you need to know who, who to call, you know, who to call to help. Um, you know, some places do have a pediatric staff in-house, even if they're, you know, they're at a community hospital. Um, you have to, in some places, have the neonatologists in-house, even if they're smaller community hospitals. So just recognizing and, and anticipating, you know, who to call in those situations. Um, maybe, um, and if you don't have a pediatrician or a pediatric hospitalist or, um, or a practitioner in-house or, or a neonatologist, thinking about um, the, labor, the labor and delivery, labor and delivery nurses who have some NRP training, um, you know, they typically have NRP training. So just having that, the neonatal resuscitation program training, just to, to have another set of hands or, or somebody to, to kind of, to go who's gone through the algorithm um, nearby. So really knowing that along for the immediate, um, if the delivery is imminent, and then also recognizing that, you know, which referral center is, um, you know, where you would, where you would transfer the baby and getting one of those docs on the line. You can have a neonatologist on the phone as the um, as the 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 baby's born to, to to walk you through the resuscitation. I think just recognizing those resources and identifying them early, I think, is really important, especially if they become a higher level of resuscitation. We often get calls from from outside hospitals um, when a delivery is imminent and our team can't get there just yet before we mobilize and really talking talking them through uh, through the the steps to prepare. Yeah, and if you look at the full-term babies that come, you know, 85% of them or so really don't need any resuscitation or very little of that, right? Exactly. So it's preparing for those more rare cases where they're going to need, you know, uh, resuscitation and transfer and everything else. It's just, again, being prepared. Uh, Michael, do you want to go ahead and go over that next case? And I'll share a brief anecdote about how uh, this became an interest of mine. It was certainly um, an interesting summer. My wife and I were expecting our first baby. We were at 38 weeks uh, at the time when my wife's best friend from high school was due to get married. Uh, and that's all well and good to be able to go to the big event, uh, fully pregnant and sort of ready to go. However, um, this wedding was taking place on the vineyard, which for those who don't know, that would require both a ferry ride and then a cab ride and all the logistics to uh, you know, get to this remote destination to celebrate our friend's wedding. So my uh, strategy to approach this was quite different from my wife's. She said, we're going to the wedding. And I then dove into studying, oh my goodness, <laughs> what do I do if, when, et cetera. Uh, and I had like every schedule for every ferry. I had all this equipment in my bag. It was a, <laughs> it was a real moment for us. Um, but anyway, Dr. Bruno, to, to this point, to this anecdote, let's assume all going well, right? There are plenty of babies that are born out in the community for, you know, for their preference, you know, on a daily basis. What are some just general concepts outside of like medical equipment, medical personnel um, that will allow for a safe transition of that baby who's born out in the community? So I would say in, in those situations, really just recognizing that you, know, you hope that the, um, the birth is witnessed by a medical professional. So that in those situations, when they're unwitnessed you know, deliveries by medical professionals, you really wanna make sure that the baby is not too far below the cord or too far above the cord. Um, and that's important because if the, um, if the baby were 
too far below the core, the umbilical cord or too long, the baby could actually get um, an infusion of, of too much blood and be, can become poly, polycythemic or have a higher hematocrit when they're first born, which can compromise the baby. And then on the flip side, having the baby too elevated can actually lose blood before the cord is clamped. So that's just one thing that we always, when it's unwitnessed by a medical professional, it's something that we, we often evaluate those babies and watch them a little more closely and, and get a blood count on them early. Um, just to see because that can compromise um, the babies. Um, the other thing is just making sure that once they're born that you have a, you know, a towel to dry them, a towel or blanket to dry them, that you have an area that's, um, that's warmer. So if the baby comes out and is crying um, and is vigorous, then you, the best, one of the best ways to warm the baby is actually, and this is something like we had talked about prior, is that putting the baby to the mom's chest, like skin to skin is really important. Um, so, so doing that to, to give them more, because you don't want them to become too cold, because um, that can certainly compromise their respiratory status and really um, they can become more ill. Um, even with that in that short period of time. So making sure you have blankets in place, making sure you have a warm space that the room isn't too cold, that window, you know, if it's, you know, it's a cool time of the year that the windows are closed. So those kind of things I would say offhand. And then just making sure that, um, that you have like simple equipment. And if you don't have um, a suction or anything like that, if the baby has, because they, they're born, they're just with fluid, their lungs are just full of fluid, just making sure there's a way to, to potentially to dry them off, to keep them warm and then to, to clear their airway in any way. And if you don't have, if they're not breathing well, just something to, to sort of op to open up their airway. Would you still wait like 30 seconds before you uh, clamp and cut the cord? Did, so delayed cord do that? clamping, there, were ben there have been shown to be benefits to delayed cord clamping. I mean, it really depends on the comfort of the, I would say in this situation, the comfort of those who are at the resuscitation. Okay. Um, yes, that is what is recommended delayed cord clamping because there are, there are benefits to that. But if, um, if you don't have all the equipment and it's just not optimal, then I would say I'd rather have the baby born safely than to try to, um, if it's to, then to try to, to mimic something that would happen in the hospital. Okay. Yeah, so that was exactly my question, Tom. So what should we do with that cord? What, like what's... Right, so you, what you wanna do is have the baby as level as possible with the cord and then clamp and then put a clamp on. And so that's a great, so if you don't have a clamp, if this is unwitnessed, then thinking of um, some, some apparatus that can tie, that can tie the cord. Um, you know, whether it be, I mean, goodness, I'm trying to think if there were like a thin towel or a thin, something thin that could, that could, um, that could tamponade, like tamponade that area. And then, um, and then a pair of scissors, or if, if they're, you know, available to, to separate, um, to separate the baby from the cord. And then at that time, you put the baby on the mom's chest, you know, as far as the how level. Yeah. And you can put the baby on the mom's chest initially as you're doing that as well. Just sort of, it just depends on the area where you are and just, and sort of making sure that it's not, the baby's again, not too high or too low below the cord. All right, great. So don't overthink it, I guess, you know, making sure that there's a, you know, this is a natural phenomenon. It's not necessarily a medical problem, right? When it's all right. going well. Um, and so, you know, having your towels to do the, the warmth and the drying piece of it, uh, using mom for skin to skin is a great idea. Um, keeping the baby level or parallel to mom so you don't have induce a transfusion or the opposite problem. And then, uh, you know, taking your time to, to, to thoughtfully clamp that cord. And these are my takeaways that I heard from that case. <laughs> 
Right. And also, and one thing to, to highlight as well is that once the baby, once you use a towel on the, cause the babies are pretty wet when they're first born is that you may, once the towel is wet, clearing that away and getting another dry towel. Cause you don't want to keep them in, in a wet towel. Cause that will just make them more cold. So yes, you dry them off, but you dry, clear it away and get another, another warm towel until they're completely dry. And then you can keep them in the towel. All right. So let's say EMS gets called to go to a home and, um, baby's delivered at home, but EMS gets there and realizes that this baby needs some uh, support, some respiratory support. Right, you know, how do you recommend they get that support and what should they do first and kind of give us a, a kind of background and using some of the stuff we've learned in uh, NRP? Okay, so that, that's a great question. So a baby, baby comes out and requires some respiratory support. So um, what I would do initially with any neonatal resuscitation is that I, you know, the baby's born and I assess how they're, how they're breathing and their heart rate. Um, and in that situation, if, if their heart rate is less than 100, and then I would give some, some breathing support after drying and stimulating well for 30 seconds. So I dry and stimulate well. And, um, and 30 seconds can seem like a very long time, um, especially when this is an unanticipated, um, an unanticipated delivery happening a little bit earlier. So, but the majority of babies, and as you, as you mentioned earlier, will re require minimal resuscitation. And drying and stimulating well is, is really a very simple step. That, that the majority of kids respond to, the majority of babies will respond to. So I always think about, I want to, you know, I have a towel and I want to dry them, dry them off really well, like a washerboard on their back. I don't want to harm, I don't want to hit, I don't want to hit or, you know, do anything along, but you know, you really okay. can rub their backs with a towel fairly vigorously and dry. I always think I want to dry them off well, if they're not breathing, if the adequacy of breathing is not there, if I don't see the chest rise, if I don't, if certainly if I don't hear crying, if I don't, and that's uh, crying can, can not always be the best, best proxy, as I mentioned, for a vigorous infant, but really just the breathing. Some, some babies are vigorous in, in breathing and not crying, but these, you know, if the baby's chest is not rising, then you continue to do that for 30 seconds to really dry and stimulate that baby. Some people flick the heels with their fingers. Um, sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't work as well, but I always think if I dry them off well, they don't usually like or enjoy having their, their head dried off and a lot of babies will, will cry during that. So I give that 30 seconds. If the baby is still not breathing or I, can, I think may need breathing support, then in that situation, then I would think about um, giving them some kind of breathing support. And in the hospital, you would wanna give positive pressure ventilation. And if this were an EMS, if the EMS providers were there and they had an appropriate size um, uh, amber bag, that um, and an appropriate size mass, then that would be the next step in this. If they're if their heart if they're not breathing well and their um, and their heart rate is and or their heart rate is less than a hundred, then putting the mask on the on the face and then giving breaths at a um, at a at a breath at a cadence of like of forty to sixty breaths per minute. So I always think of it like a waltz, like breathe two three, breathe two three, breathe two three, and um, and you do that until. You, you feel that you feel as though you have adequate ventilation. Like, so then you really sort of, you, that's your goal to try to get good chest rise by troubleshooting that as much as possible. Now, if a baby's not breathing, so just sort of, I'm thinking of along the lines, if okay. a baby's not breathing well, then, then CPAP wouldn't be appropriate. Nasal cannula wouldn't be appropriate. None of those things would be appropriate because in this situation, because you really have to stimulate them to breathe. 
And those will not give you the pressure that you need to stimulate the babies to, to breathe in those situations. And when you give the breaths, it's generally about um, 20 millimeters of mercury pressure. So 20 millimeters of pressure to start. Um, and then you increase that pressure to see if you can improve your, your, your ventilation, your movement of your chest. We look back at cases. What are some like the pitfalls that you see from the community? Uh, from like, you know, EMS perspective, if you case comes in, you say, oh, I wish they did this or, um, you know, just like pitfalls, basically, we learned from, you know, things that happen. One of the biggest, um, the biggest challenges that I see from from those who don't resuscitate neonates routinely, and even those who do routinely, because I think sometimes it's forgotten, um, is that ventilation establishment of adequate ventilation is the most important step in neonatal resuscitation. And what we, we see sometimes is that a heart rate is low and the, and the, first, the, the, the first inclination is to start chest compressions. I've heard that there, the PALS guidelines may be changing, really focusing more on ventilation than previous. Okay. So again, I, that's, sort of, so that's something that I hear maybe coming down the pipeline at some point. Um, but but what, we, what we really focus on is that if I see a patient with with no or with no ventilation or nothing on their face and they're getting chest compressions and they're a neonate, then that baby will likely be very compromised. So I've seen I've actually seen that anecdotally um, in my career where a patient had a, an unplanned extubation in an ICU and the person just got very nervous at the time and the person who was a very experienced person got very nervous. And, um, and all I went over to the, I was called to the bedside and I just saw chest compressions being given and the baby had nothing on their face. And this was a preemie who was very, who was very young. And that baby did, did not, did have some, I think uh, likely sequelae from that event. So, so just yeah. sort of along those lines, um, the, the adequacy, that's even neonatal providers. So then I think about EMS providers or non-neonatal providers. And I just think about in those situations, you do what you know. Um, and I, and I understand that. So you, the heart rate's low, we have to do, you know, we have to do something, but I always think of it as these, these babies, once they get, once they get the, their chest moving and their breathing, their heart rates, the, the majority of kids, their heart rates start to increase and chest compressions are not necessary. That was, yeah, that's, that's, perfect. Like, that's the biggest, that's the biggest take home. And it takes some time now. You really have to, sometimes they're, they're, they're wet, they're, their heads aren't are flexed down. You really have to get them in a good neutral position. You have to um, get good a good seal on the mask. You have to sometimes have to increase that pressure higher than you even the 20 to 25 to, to get that chest to rise. And then you can back off um, and you may need to suction. You may need to suction if you hear gurgling. You Sometimes the mouth isn't even open. And sometimes in babies, it can be a little bit more challenging. You may have to they don't have, they don't typically have teeth. So you can put your finger in to open, to open their mouth a bit or use the lower portion of the mask to open the mouth. Um, and then, and then in those situations before I would start chest compressions, if the materials are there, we consider intubating the baby before, before you get to the point of, of, of a, far, or a higher level cardiorespiratory resuscitation. Okay, great. That, that's awesome. And like I said, if you see that the heart rate is coming up, that's a good indicator that you're on the right path, that your resuscitation is going well, and you, you probably should just kind of stay that course. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes it, it takes time, but if you see that improvement, if you see heart rate improvement, you that's exactly right. Res, respiratory, respiratory, respiratory. I always say that with our with our trainees and with our staff when we get when when people get nervous in these situ situations, especially when it's unexpected. 
um, and, and just focusing on that as much as possible. All right, from the EMS perspective, I mean, this is a theme that goes on and on in this prioritization of being really skilled at bag mass ventilation. It's really nice to hear that from zero to 100, this is a really important skill set to really focus on because uh, it can certainly go a long way. Um, and then I guess the other kind of homework assignment that I'm hearing from this case, this particular case, is that you know every EMS agency, um, or I should say each state, has different protocols with how they sort of um, recommend uh, different illness scripts and the like. So um, definitely think that folks that do work on EMS trucks or with EMS groups um, should take a moment to just review their protocols. I would assume it's gonna echo a lot of what Dr. Bruno just mentioned, really the focus on ventilation uh, as the first, second and third major steps, uh, of course, after warming and drying. So um, thank you. I think that's a really good case that illustrates a lot of major uh, take home points from NRP and how that can be extrapolated out into the field. I think that, um, you know, the next case to really dive into, and again, this is like, we're, we're just increasing everyone's heart rate and blood pressure as we listen to these cases as they go, but um, really looking for some tangible take homes uh, and whether you're an EMS provider, but more likely whether you're in the community hospital setting or even in a children's hospital setting, um, when a baby is born precipitously um, and needs uh, kind of extensive resuscitation, especially when they're premature. So, uh, you know, I'll give you a quick case that I was involved with fairly recently. Um, I tend to work a lot of overnights these days and, uh, you know, on a, on a somewhat regular basis, a quarterly basis, perhaps, you know, you get called to the parking lot because as, as Tom's case illustrated before, you know, the baby is born in the backseat. They didn't quite get there in time despite everyone's best efforts. Um, and so, you know, I'll add the wrinkle here that not only is that baby um, born in a parking lot, but um, mom is screaming, you know, this wasn't supposed to happen just yet. You know, the baby's only 28 weeks or whatever, 32 weeks, something, you know, early in, on in the gestation. Um, Dr. Bruno, you want to comment a little bit about how some additional considerations to make for that preemie um, who, let's just say, is also not vigorous um, given this uh, challenging delivery? So no, so that that's a great question, and I know that's everybody's everybody's fear. Not only to have a baby born, then to have the baby be premature. And um, you know, from our standpoint, you know, as neonatologists, you know, twenty eight weeks gestation, like talking about a twenty eight week gestation baby, the majority of those babies actually survive and do quite well. Um, and they function. Their resuscitations usually go fairly, are usually fairly straightforward um, in the neonatal in a, a neonatal resuscitation room. So um, from our standpoint, I would say. The things that I would worry, I would be concerned about the most are, you know, a lot of the things that you would think about with a full-term baby. So I want to keep this baby. I want to stimulate this baby. I don't want to dry them in the way that I would, again, if I have certain equipment, I don't want to dry them. So I just, I want to qualify that. So oftentimes if we have, if we were to just a, a resuscitation that's, we anticipate less than 32 weeks gestation, then what we would do is typically put the babies in a, um, a little bag, a little plastic bag on the, the lower portion of their body. And then we put a hat on them to decrease the insensible, um, the water loss and the heat loss from their heads and their bodies. So in that situation, when we put them in the bag, we actually don't dry them off. We still stimulate them to help increase their drive to breathe, especially if they are having some kind of um, potentially primary apnea or a pause in breathing where they're not breathing adequately. Um, and in that situation, you would, uh, you would put them in the in the bag, and then actually, if you have a warming, we have um, trans warmers 
where we would um, crack crack the um, the heating bag and then put that beneath the baby as well to keep them warm. So if you have those tools in that situation, that is you know that is wonderful. That that's ideal. If you don't have those tools or you don't have the bag, then then I would treat them like you would a full term baby. I would dry them. If you don't have the bag, I would dry them because you don't want to keep them wet without the without the bag on because then that just that can worsen worsen the fluid loss. So and you can just make them drying, make them cold. The water, the um the bag itself helps to decrease that wet water loss and helps to keep the the baby warmer. Um, so in those situations, so if you have those tools and you're in the ER parking lot and somebody grabs, like if there's a preemie baby bag and you can walk down and you, ha you have some, some of the um, information, some of those tools, then that's great. If not, I would dry and stimulate that baby, put a hat on, get a blanket, get a warm blanket, um, and then get the baby you know, to, into the hospital into a, a, under a warmer so that they can be more um, adequately warmed. So those are so and so special considerations are that you know at 28 weeks of gestation some babies don't even need a breathing tube, um, especially if they're you know they're more mature, but they likely need some kind of respiratory support. Um, so that's something I would still look at the adequacy of the breathing and and in um, in that situation and potentially initiate positive pressure or bag mass ventilation if it's necessary. Now if that's not necessary, then really just supporting them, you could potentially put a nasal cannula on, or if you had the continuous, some babies actually, when they don't need intubation, may need continuous positive airway pressure, just prongs in their nose to stimulate them to breathe um, if they have some mild um, respiratory disease or which is typically transient. So if that makes, makes sense. But again, that's if you don't have all those tools, just work with what you have. And that's really just keeping the baby warm and dry. All right, great. Uh, I have a couple questions. Uh, one is about deep suctioning. Um, I heard that's like out. Is that true? And can you talk a little bit about suctioning? So that's, that's a really great question, Tom, because um, we used to, I still think back when I was an intern many years ago now that we, we used to, I think every baby typically would have a deep suction, you know, suction down. And I think we were suctioning the baby's stomachs, you know, that's basically where it was because it went to the path where, where it wasn't supposed to go, where we didn't necessarily want it to go. And we get all these juices down and it made us, it was satisfying. But what was reported in, um, and the NRP guide, guidelines changed as a result was that there were esophageal perforations um, along those lines because people are pretty vigorous doing that. I mean, you would, you yeah. try to get it down, try to get everything out. Um, so that was something. And then also every time you would do that, every, for every, um, every time you do that, the majority of times we would actually see the baby's vagal and become bradycardic. And that's another, especially if you're dealing with a preemie, that's another compromise, you know, sort of their heart rates drops, you're putting them at risk for having, you know, potential interventricular hemorrhage or you're compromising the, you know, it's, so those are things that, um, that have fallen out of favor. So the recommendation is to certainly not suction, you know, deep suction, um, unless there's, you hear or you're concerned that there's an obstruction. So if you hear gurgling in the mouth, like there are the, um, the bulb suctions that are, that can, they can also vagal a baby. If you go in deep enough, if you go, you know, you can actually cause the baby to vagal as well. So sort of recognizing that, that it's something that should be done if there's a suspicion that the baby is not responding. So if you have a vigorous baby and you just hear them being gurgly, um, like gurgling and they're like yeah. clearing their secretions well and they're breathing okay, kind of let them work it out. Um, that's what that's what the, the newer recommendation is. If you feel like it's compromising them or you suspect that there's a, there's a, there's a plug or something, then certainly deep suction if you feel like that could, could potentially help the baby. I've certainly had um, neonates that I've been ready to intubate 
and then we suction we suction them out well because we can't move the chest and there's a big plug and then they can breathe on their own and they don't even need a breathing tube so these are those are situations that i that i that we really focus on but suctioning routinely uh, is not recommended anymore and i guess the other thing is this would be a good case to discuss this is the vital signs so for me vital signs are paramount in all patients right and so for these patients they're very different than our pediatric patients and our adults. So maybe we could just kind of walk through, like start with oxygen saturation. And this, this is one thing I learned from you kind of early on is, you know, put them on a monitor if the sat takes time to come up. And for me, I didn't really know that. So I think that's, you know, maybe we could just kind of go through some of that. Absolutely. And that's something that's actually been more newly recognized in neonatology too, within the last, you know, five to eight years, just so just so you recognize this, because some of the literature that came out um, was that there was a recognition that you shouldn't have a saturation of 95% when they're first born. And that's, that's been during my career so far. And I've been out of fellowship, you know, 10 plus years now um, that changed. So the recognition is that their PaO2 in utero, so their oxygenation in utero is very low and they can, they can still thrive with that. And then as they're born, they, it takes some time to, to, um, to adapt to that relative high R oxygen than they saw in utero. And um, what's typically recommended if you're gonna, you're gonna evaluate the, the pulse oximetry of a, of a neonate is to actually place the, um, place the pulse oximeter on the right upper extremity because that's going to give me the preductal saturation or the saturation that the, the baby's brain is seeing or the, the oxygen that the baby's brain is seeing. So sometimes it, and sometimes it takes a little while for as the perfusion, as the baby's perfusion sort of normalizes to get a good reading. Um, so that's also another, another challenge. But your satur saturations in the 60s when a baby is first born are normal. And that's something that is absolutely, it's really contrary to what you would think in any other child. You, oh my goodness, we need to do something now, but really sort of keeping cognizant of how many minutes of life the baby is. So really you shouldn't have a, a quote unquote normal oxygen saturation of you know, 90, 95% or higher until they're 10 minutes of life, which is sort of, which is sort of uh, you know, it, again, it goes by fairly quickly at a resuscitation, but just recognizing that and then titrating the oxygen that you're giving if you're on some respiratory support over time or giving respiratory support if the baby's saturations are lower than the, than the target range. And then that also, you also need to look at the, how the baby's breathing and how they're, how they're moving, um, how, they're, how their chest rises you know, is or whether they're having any other signs of respiratory distress to really help them along in that, in that situation. So that's great. So that takes, that takes time. And, uh, and that's something that, cause they actually, and, and using the pulse oximeter was something that again was, is, is sort of a, we certainly used a pulse oximeter, but we would look at the babies and say, oh, that baby's blue, um, that baby's, in, and what we recognize too in some, in some pretty, um, pretty large studies is that you're, we are pretty awful as neonatologists even at determining a baby's saturations by looking at them. Oh, oh that baby's blue. Sometimes you can tell, but they, it didn't matter if you were practicing for a few years or decades, they found that it was really inconsistent. People were not great at determining oxygen saturations just by visualizing. So that's why they took that eject. They really made the pulse oximeter um, the, the standard that and, and putting a, you know, a heart rate monitor on just taking that, that, that subjective or you know, measure out to seeing what it is based on the measurement. Okay, great, thank you. 
So while we're talking about vital signs, let's talk about heart rate for a second because it's important in the resuscitation of the ill-appearing uh, infant or the non-vigorous infant as well. And I think that magic number of 100 is really important. Um, so let's say, Dr. Bruno, that um, you know, you've done the right stuff, you've done your drying and your suctioning and you're stimulating, you've done your ventilation when that doesn't seem to have uh, helped the baby transition. And now, um, you know, at what point do you start compressions? How do you do compressions in these patients? Um, is there anything else we need to think about with respect to monitoring that heart rate? And All right, that, no, Michael, those, those are great questions. So what, what ends up happening is that you have your, um, the, baby's, the baby's heart rate. So the absolute first heart rate should be um, greater than 100. If it's greater than 100, then you don't really need to do anything. This is on the first pass as you evaluate the baby. If, um, if the baby's heart rate is less than 100, it doesn't matter if it's zero or 80. After you've dried and stimulated, so you start by drying and stimulating for 30 seconds after, and you assess the heart rate, the heart rate, if it, it then the, the indication for positive pressure, that is the indication for positive pressure ventilation, any heart rate less than 100. So you give breaths and you have to, and they have to be adequate breaths. As I mentioned, adequacy of ventilation is so important. So if I, if my heart rate's 60 at first pass and I'm trying to breathe for that, I'm giving breaths and I don't see the chest rise, then I need to troubleshoot. So NRP uses the, the, uh, the algorithm, Mr. Sofa. And that's something I had, I'd sort of, I didn't use that term earlier in the, in the podcast, but really just sort of mask. So I wanna make sure my mask is nice and tight. And I wanna make sure that I'm in a, a neutral position. I'm not too flexed or extended, just a baseline. So mask. Um, repositioning the baby. So I want that baby in that neutral sniffing position. I may want a suction if I hear gurgling or I concern that there's an obstruction. So M, M mask, R repositioning the baby, S suctioning, O opening the mouth. So if my mouth is not open, I'm going to open that. I'm going to open the mouth as best I can. P, I want to increase the pressure. So I want to increase the pressure I'm delivering to a, you know, to a safe, sometimes it's 20, I had mentioned 20 millimeters of mercury, sometimes then you go to 25, you may even go to 30 and 35. And then once you're moving the chest, you can back off because you don't want to develop a pneumothorax because you don't want to give them too high pressure. But once you have a high opening pressure and you stimulate the baby to breathe, oftentimes that's, that's a good response. So you see that chest, you'll see the baby respond. And then A is considering an alternate airway. So I would say going through those, I, I always think in each step, to give about five breaths and see if I have an improvement. Then the next step, okay, I'm gonna give five breaths. I don't see an improvement and keep going. And then if I get to the point of an alternate airway, and this is before I get to chest compressions, regardless of heart rate, if it's less than hundred, this is what I'm doing. If I get to the point where I need an alternate airway, then I'm gonna potentially our, you know, our neonatal team, because this is what we do, would intubate the baby. If it becomes a difficult airway and we're compromised because we certainly encounter even with an experienced team, occasionally a, um, an airway anomaly or on a you know, rare occasion, some kind of really challenging airway, then a, a laryngeal, ma laryngeal mask airway is appropriate in these situations. It's something to consider. Um, and then certainly if you need you know, um, other, other help, you know, whether they're using a different kind of scope or those lines, just thinking along those lines. But if you get to the point where you, you really need to establish that airway as best possible. So once you do that, after 30 seconds, if I'm moving that chest well, and I'm intubated. So in the majority of these kids, we get to the point of intubation and the heart rate. So I do that for 30 seconds. Once I'm intubated, I'm moving the chest, the clock starts for adequacy of intubation or ad adequacy of, um, of, of respiration. I do that for 30 seconds. 
And talking about chest compressions, I don't start chest compressions unless my heart rate is less than 60 in spite of 30 seconds of adequate ventilation. So my heart rate may be 70 or 80, and then it wouldn't be an indication to start chest compressions. I really need to troubleshoot the ventilation, troubleshoot other things if my heart rate is not responding the way I would think it would in a baby who's, who's intubated at that point. Or if I'm moving the chest well and I'm not intubated, then thinking if I need to go to intubation. But if the heart rate is less than, less than 60 with spite of 30 seconds of adequate ventilation, then I can think about, then I would think about chest compressions. And the thing about chest compressions in neonates as opposed to pediatric patients and older, and older patients is that it's always coordinated and um, regardless of whether they're intubated. So I always think about it's, you know, it's a three to one, three to one. So it's one and two and three of chest compressions and breathe. So it's a three to one. So you really do have a lot of ventilation in the, and you're still chest, you're compressing the chest and you're compressing the chest at the lower, um, just above the xiphoid process, the lower third of the, um, the sternum, and you're compressing about a third of the diameter of the chest. And it's always coordinated even when you're intubated, as I mentioned. So it's one and two and three and breathe and one and two and three and breathe. And I do that for a full minute before I would assess the heart rate again. And at that point, like at that point, the majority, again, you, it's really, I, I think about in my, in the whole of my career so far is like 10 and a half years out of fellowship that, that I would say that I have given epinephrine, sort of getting to the next step of it. I've given epinephrine a handful of times in the majority, in my, in the whole of my career, because the majority of kids will get back with, will, will respond to, to uh, resuscitation with ventilation in these situations. Do you want to just go over the dosing for epi? The indications for actually giving epinephrine would be I would I would my heart rate is less than 60 in spite of a minute of coordinated chest compressions and ventilation. So I do chest compressions and ventilation for one minute and then my heart rate is still less than 60, then I would then I would give epinephrine. And um, in that situation you use a one to ten thousand um, concentration of epinephrine. And we typically give, we would give um, usually 0.1 ml per kilo to one ml per kilo of, of epinephrine in that situation. And that, so the preferred route is, is umbilical venous catheter, just so everybody, so, you know, there are people will ask sometimes if I get a peripheral IV in, was that, is that adequate? You're, you're oftentimes not going to be able to get a peripheral IV in some of these babies when they're so compromised, but the umbilical venous route is preferred. Now, what has come up even in our unit recently is the use of, um, of whether we should use interosseous um, administration, especially, and I, this has come up actually when I've talked to, I've, um, I've given NRP classes for EMS providers in the, in the community and, um, and looking for, they don't typically have umbilical venous catheters um, in their, in, even in their labor, their labor, labor bags, so even the bags that they have, you know, for, to attend a delivery. So we've looked at, you know, different suction catheters or different, and there was nothing that could really mimic the umbilical venous catheter. So, um, so what's come up is that you can actually give, I mean, giving it, you know, IO, IO is a, is something that to, to be considered because really it's, they tend, their providers, if that's where you're tend, tend to be more comfortable with, then I would, I would recommend what you're more comfortable with. Another thing that comes up is um, is whether giving endotracheal epinephrine is something that um, that is is indicated. And what is true is that you can actually you can give endotracheal epinephrine. The dose is typically higher. It's still the one to ten thousand concentration, but you would give 0.5 
to one ml per kilo. So you give a higher dose, but the truth is it, it's not counted in the epinephrine administration for the, uh, for the resuscitation. So you would, so you, by the time you're trying to get a line or replacing an umbilical venous catheter, if you give, even if you give endotracheal epinephrine and it takes longer than you would think to admin, to, uh, to place an umbilical venous catheter, it just doesn't count. So you can give it, but they, but it's really not been studied how well it's absorbed in the system because you, you would really just bag, you just bag, you put it down the endotracheal tube and you bag and you hope, you hope that it goes where it should. But oftentimes the true response you're going to see is with epinephrine itself through the, through the, the venous route. And when you place an umbilical venous catheter, it's typically, you're going to, um, to tie, it's, it's really a very quick, a really quick technique. And what you would do is you tie the, the base of the cord with whatever you have to tie. And then you, you cut the, you, you make sure the cord is clamped itself. And then, and you identify the vein, which is the big vein, the, the big, the largest vessel there. Sometimes there are just, there's just two, um, there should be two arteries in one vein, but you're going to try to administer it through the venous, through the venous side. And, um, and then you just, you place the umbilical venous catheter in about five centimeters until you get some blood return. And then once you have blood return, then you, 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 um, you administer the, the epinephrine and then you follow, you follow with a few cc's of saline or whatever you have saline lactator ringers, whatever in that situation. And then you, you, you assess the heart rate every three to five minutes by initiating the chest compressions again. All right, great. That is fantastic. There's so much information and uh, it was a really great review. It's really great. No, thank uh, you. But I just want to focus on that, that again, that's rarely needed. Right. That's rarely needed. And I know that it's, a, it's a very detailed. And even when we do it, it's such a, it's a fairly rare event if you get to the point of that. So just focusing on the ventilation okay. and even chest is, is the biggest take home point from all this. Okay. That's great. Thank you guys both for, for this conversation. I think um, it was helpful just to review all that content, but I think, you know, at least I'm walking away with some really practical tips that, um, should slow me down in these moments, um, just so again, we can take the best care of these kids. And I think that really sticking to the general principles of warm, dry, and suction, um, you know, the beginning of the NRP guideline and the overarching emphasis on, on proper ventilation. And really, if things aren't going right, reassessing your ventilation strategy before running off to think about epi and umbi lines and, and all these really advanced kind of protocols and, and, and strategies. Um, so yeah, so you know, my major take-home points are really just that, really thinking about the systems of care that are going to get your baby uh, to definitive treatment as quickly as possible. Um, really thinking through maximizing ventilatory support uh, throughout the whole continuum of care, whether the baby's born on the ferry or is born uh, in the children's hospital emergency department. Um, and then you know that one extra pearl about temperature control with preemies, I think, was really valuable to be reminded about the use of the bag or some sort of warming technique um, to really be conscientious of their temperature regulation. Um, is there any other points you guys want to make sure that we leave our audience with? Well, I thought that one point about uh, three to one, if you could just remember three to one, the, the walls kind of back and forth, that, that's like a really good thing because it's easy to you know, think about kids and get off and be doing something totally different. So keeping it three to one is good. And uh, just sticking to those basics, um, drying stimulation and, um, and focusing on the, the heart rate and not getting distracted to, you know, start doing CPR too early. Well, Dr. Bruno, um, thank you so much for being here and fielding all of our questions. 
Um, it was a pleasure talking with you and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being with you guys today. Thank you. Thank both you guys. You did an awesome job. I appreciate it.